when our uh, mind, which is a computer, is running the same script over and over because it relied on it from a very young age, and that, those can be very bad messages, but if they kept you alive at 3, 4, 5, 10, 15, and they're now outdated, they're in conflict with your soul, with the way that God has designed for you to live. Welcome to the Father State. I am Jesse Lee Peterson. The Father State is on subscribe star. So hit, hit the subscribe star link um, in the description to support our work, all right? I do appreciate it. I have with me a very interesting guest today, Aaron Elaine. And Aaron is a medical intuitive healer. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. I do appreciate it. I appreciate you. So what is a medical intuitive? Well, a medical intuitive is an individual who can sense, typically within their body, somatic feelings and sensations that would connect to a root cause uh, of another person's illness. So, for example, if you've got uh, a broken leg, a medical intuitive will usually feel that, like in their own leg, or they'll either, or they'll feel that the cause of you know what happened um, to to cause that broken leg. If that makes sense, I know that's very esoteric. So, are you saying that you could be in the room with someone that has a medical illness happening, and you can feel the pain, their pain? You can feel the pain somatically. And you can also pick up on what caused that. Really? Yes. And so if a person has a broken leg, without speaking to the person, you can feel the pain of the broken leg and you know what happened to cause it. Yes. And generally, there's a predisposition around an emotional conflict in their life that's contributed to that. So perhaps if it's on the left side, that's that constitutes a feminine energy. On the right side, it constitutes a masculine energy. So very often when someone has left side injuries, there is a conflict actively or an unresolved conflict with a feminine energy. Could be mother, wife, coworker, but every time it's drilled back to that, a specific relationship and unresolved spiritual conflict. But people aren't looking beyond what is, so it's really hard to communicate to, to people. And so you can pick that up from a stranger. Yeah. And what, what, can you give me an example of someone you've helped in that way? Yes. So one session, uh, and sessions are what I call them, prior to the session, I had a lot of trouble breathing. And my rule for working with individuals is I know nothing about them. I don't want to know their name, their occupation, why they're seeing me. And that's the disclaimer on my site. So I had someone coming to see me. And prior to the session, even hours prior, I felt a pneumonia, a bronchitis, incredible trouble breathing. This is many years ago, five, six, seven years ago. Mm. I almost canceled the session, but something said to me, move through it, you'll be okay. Five minutes prior to the session, I felt restored. I felt normal. The person showed up. 
And long story short, they had been on a respirator for decades to sleep. They had so much trouble breathing. There was an apnea issue, and it was all within that lung structure. So we sat down and went through some personal details from the past, and, and they were able to immediately make a connection to something very emotional and very repressed um, within their private biological circle. And the moment that they made that connection, they were breathing differently, and they never needed the respirator again. So often, well, I would say all the time, we have major spiritual problems that contribute to psychological and emotional problems that then move into the body. But we're not making these associations because it sounds a little crazy. So do you heal the psychological problem or the physical problem of the person? We go straight to the root, and the root is always a spiritual problem first. Right. And then we move into the emotional and the psychological. But I have to tap into the emotional and the psychological to open up their, their uh, you know, availability to, to spiritual understanding because many people are not. But then they start to make that, that connection. And when the soul and the, and the mind connect, then the body responds. And so the body, uh, once you deal with the psychological emotional. issues, emotions and stuff like that, and they have a physical broken leg, for an example. Mm-hmm. Will that heal the broken leg, too? Very often. It does heal the body? Yes. And so you've dealt with people like that that had broken bones, and you dealt with their psychological issues, and their bones came back together? Many times. I had a woman reach out to me years ago. She'd read the prerequisite books that I have listed, and I said, you can't tell me why you're calling, and she kept calling, calling, calling. I went to see her, and I, she said, can I please tell you why, why you're here? I said, no, we spoke for a few hours. And then she told me, I have a stage four cancer. I have a short time to live. And I started to laugh because I knew it wasn't true. And then she started to laugh. And in those three hours preceding that, we had made a million connections to, to different psychological uh, hang-ups and you know boxes that she had stored different experiences in relative to very important relationships in her life. Right. One month later, she flew to New York to see her oncologist, and they said, I don't know what you did. You're fine. She wrote about it. She left me voicemails about it. So these are just very strange acts of God, but God communicates. And so way. that person will heal the cancer when you dealt with all that? She healed herself by making these spiritual connections to her emotional and psychological state and then making the corresponding changes in, in her life because changes have to be made. Right. You know, We're lazy. We don't like to make changes, so we stay rooted in our illnesses. What would be the cause of a person out working, a contractor mm-hmm. out working, and that contractorship fall off a building or something or accidentally cut their hand with a saw thing that they were using, what would that have to do with mommy issues? It would seem haphazard, but when we're out of balance, mentally, emotionally, and then physically, that physical body is actually speaking to everything that's going on for us in an intangible sense. Um, so depending on you know what side of the body that injury 
was sustained, you could almost, I, I have always drawn it back to a male or, or female energy that is out of whack in their life. And it is God's way of saying, there's something you need to pay attention to. But the majority of the population would obviously wouldn't see it that way. They'd think it's, it's crazy. Uh, what's the difference between a male energy and a female energy? Well, it shows up in the body differently, at least for me. This is how I've always connected to it, and I think others do as well. That left side is female, and that right side is male. I don't know if I've answered your question, though. And how can you detect uh, which energy you're dealing with? When I feel it on the left side, I know it's female. And so I'll oh, go see. immediately into a corresponding relationship in their life. Do women have male energy? Yes, we all have a balance of male and female. It depends on how we balance that and the people that we interact with. So I read that you deal with a lot of what they call high-end clients, right? Some. Um, what type of individuals do you deal with? All kinds of individuals. Uh, I don't know that I could specify a specific group, oh, okay. but I have seen everybody from you know, C-suites of major corporations to students that are, uh, you know, working really hard to take care of the session with me. Why do you think people trust you with this? I think it's my writing. So I had started a blog uh, when I first began. I had no picture of my face, nothing. It was Everything was blank. I wanted a blank slate right. to not be judged, you know no associations. Right. And so people would read the things that I was writing about. And there's energy in what we write about. You know, you can you can feel the intention, I think. And so I've had some folks say, I read one of your articles. I need to see you tomorrow and, and demanding, doing whatever it takes. There's an intangible connection that we share through communications. And I think that the, the blog is the overwhelming, if not maybe the only reason people have seen me. Oh, I see. And do they uh, typically see you in private? They say, hey, keep my name private. Don't tell anyone? Half of the time, yes. <laughs> and why would, they, why would they want to keep it private? So a lot of these folks uh, are on Wall Street. They're physicians. They are well-known public figures. And I think it, it rocks Two things. I think it rocks the boat for them in terms of judgment. I mean, this is obviously a very out there um, practice. Right. So that's one. And I think, two, there is a sacred space around uh, th that, that type of work. Right. And we have a web of thought and a web of consciousness. And so some people might call that an evil eye. Call it what you like. But if we are in a vulnerable state and we've got consciousness from other people coming in and imparting their own thoughts or, or will, it, it can feel very sensitive until that, um, that healing is complete. So you've had doctors come to you for healing? Absolutely. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Um, are you surprised by that? Initially, 10 or 12 years ago, I was, but it was so common and it just kept happening over and over and over and over. And Individuals I see are really intelligent people, maybe too intelligent for their own good in yeah. some cases. And do you work alone? Yes. Um, how did you get into this healing, So intuitive healing? 
I have always had this connection, but I took a very traditional route. I went to Northeastern University in Boston, studied journalism and modern language, and was on a business track. And every job I had, I, I was just overwhelmingly sensitive to the environment. Um, I did a brief stint on television uh, as an actress to, to try to break out and get comfortable with that energy because I knew it was leading somewhere public. But after that, my life just seemed to stop, um, really stop. I couldn't find a job. I couldn't find a corporate job. I sat for about a year to sending out resumes from coffee shops and nobody wanted me. I looked for dog walking jobs. I looked for um, waitressing jobs. You couldn't even get a dog walking job? I'm telling you nothing. <laughs> I actually littered um, downtown Manhattan yeah. with paper <laughs> posters of my face and my resume looking, looking for a job. People didn't believe me as to what was happening. And I had a, an expensive studio in the East Village of Manhattan yeah. and a roommate living in my kitchen at the time. And this is after being successful in corporate, being successful on television, I, you know, guest starring, I think, is successful without a heavy background in acting. So there were crickets, and I was broke. And I would, would just sit and pray. I had no television. And God said to me, not audibly, no hallucinations, if you don't go share, share what I have given you with other people, I'm not going to let you eat again. You won't eat. You won't have a place to live. Go do it. And at the time, I had a friend who kept telling me, you, you need to, to help people. And I didn't know what to call it. Right. So I called it Reiki. But I just put my business on the map. You call it what? I called it Reiki. Oh. And that's not what I would call right. what I do. But there was no other term that I felt would communicate to the masses accordingly. And once I set up a, a simple Yelp page and put my website on the map, calls started rolling in. And when I say the lights came on, they came on fast and furiously. And I was, hands down, bar none, the, the busy, busiest healer in New York City. And it just never stopped. It was an, a night and day switch from listening to that calling, which I was you know, averted to because it's such a weird thing. So, do you, so you, you have this energy inside of you as well? Uh, prior, to, prior to recognizing the call, you say you had an energy within you, something trying to warn you or something? Is that right? Um, well, like being a child and being really sensitive, I always had that. But prior to that call... Um, Nothing else was working, and I and I, like I knew you. what I was, you know, I knew I was capable of helping other human beings, but I didn't know how to quantify it, and I hadn't read the Bible in a long time, so I wasn't making any associations, anything mystical or religious. Oh, I see. So, are you able to heal yourself? Well, that's always the hardest part, right? We can help other people, but we would cease to exist if we had all of the answers. The point of living is to live in contrast and expand. But I could answer a more specific question about healing myself. Uh, when you say live in contrast, what do you mean? Well, contrast is you know being a human being versus our soul being, which is connected to God, so it's all-knowing. Right. So we're dropped into these bodies and we're given these lessons 
that we repeatedly have to learn. And if we had all of the answers, there would be no point in living. So we all live in a degree of contrast. Uh, have you ever healed yourself of a disease or a broken bone or anything like that? I don't, I can't think of anything that I'd, I've really ever had to heal within so myself. So you've not been sick or anything since discovering this? Nothing substantial. I did have a broken toe uh, when I f first started this practice. I dropped a piece of furniture on it, and I didn't want to see a doctor. I just kept it elevated. I did get x-rays. I don't know if I healed that. It's still a little crooked, but <laughs> that's a, amazing. Yeah. Um, are you concerned that if you can heal yourself or not, does that cross your mind or... Are you I, concerned about that? I don't have fear of getting sick or injured or anything. I feel like it's, it's always in God's hands and our conscious awareness of, of where we are at, I think psychologically, spiritually, and emotionally is, is the most important. So if I focus on that, everything else is divine. And define conscious awareness for me. Conscious awareness is a state of living in self-truth. You know, we can lie to ourselves, um, but God knows we're lying. And unconsciously, we know we're lying. And so when we remove uh, whatever that, that block of fear is that causes us to lie, we are in a, a conscious state of awareness. It's not a psychological conscious state of awareness where people go to yoga and they get present. That's not consciousness. Right. Consciousness is, is a spirit of truth, and it's a, it's a, soul, it's a soul consciousness that we then allow into our body. And have you always had that? The awareness? Yes. Of, uh, perhaps. I, but I mean, you were not aware that you had the awareness. I was what? never aware that I had the awareness, and it got me into a lot of trouble as a child. Can a person be aware that they have the awareness? Potentially, but I think that there are a number of hard knocks that take place first to bring you into awareness of your awareness. And when you say hard knocks, you mean what? Difficulties in life, you know, oh, I tribulations. I think that if you are given a, a certain archetype of soul consciousness, there, is, there are hoops you need to jump through to become aware of that. Otherwise, you think you're just like everyone else. But that's where the hurdles come in and it's not a it's not a better than it's just a it's a different way of living it's a different predisposition to so-called consciousness um can other people re or have other people recognize the consciousness in you we always without seem to, you having to mention it we always recognize one another i can walk down the street and i'll make eye contact with someone they'll make eye contact with me we will stop Almost without words, there's an exchange and then maybe a conversation. And oh, that yeah. has happened my whole life. It could be any, I actually, uh, the shuttle, the bus driver taking me from LAX on, on the shuttle, you know, they do the shuttles now to the taxi. Right. She and I, I mean, this was midnight last night, one in the morning when my flight got in, an immediate connection. And it was just, you, I can feel it like through my heart. It's a very warm feeling and sensation. And did you guys look at each other and go, praise the Lord? We didn't say it, but I think we said it. Really? <laughs> it was just a very, That's it's a soul recognition. It is, you know, devoid. <sighs> That's why I, I, I strip everybody of their human container, their background, their occupation. I don't want to know anything. I want to feel. 
who and what you are. It's very different from looking through human eyes. Amazing. Um, do you ever doubt this yourself about this? No, and it's gotten me into trouble when I do doubt it. And so that's why I don't. But it's, it's a very strange thing to continuously trust. Uh, and and why, if you're conscious of it, right, why would it be dangerous to trust it? Why would you ever have doubt? Because I'm out, you know, we're outnumbered. If you have a predisposition to this other sensation and 99.9% and .9 of the individuals around you don't uh, process things in the same way, and I, I want to make it really clear, it's not a hierarchy of, of any sort. It's just a different predisposition to interpreting, you know, life on Earth. Um, but consistently, I think we're outnumbered in, in terms of in, intuiting or, or seeing or, or feeling the world in this way. So if I'm walking around and, and 99 people are um, interacting with me on, on one level and then, you know, the bus driver is not, she's that reminder to me that... Um, there's, there's a different way to, to see things and to feel things, and that trust moves in as, as a feeling and emotion in my body. But when you're consistently um, faced with a, a different consciousness or a different truth, day to day, as a human being, your mind registers that uh, on a loop, and that it runs in conflict with your soul, I think. So when your family, uh, when you saw this bus driver last night, mm -hmm. or, um, and you guys looked at each other and you knew what was going on, yeah. did you say anything to each other? We had, we had small talk, but it was... Like verbally? Yeah, but it was, it, was, it was almost like I would just speak to a friend, just incredible ease, and I know you, energy. And, you know, she erupted with a huge smile as did I. I think we were both dead tired <laughs> you know being a, morning, huh? I, it was the last she said this is my last drop off yeah. and I couldn't wait to get to my hotel so <laughs> so would you call this energy God it's a God energy is there a Satan energy as well oh there's a huge Satan energy and what is described as Satan Satan energy it's it's everything that that God isn't it's an opposition to all that is peaceful all that is neutral within our mind, body, and spirit. It serves to, it needs a home. Satanic energy, demons, they desperately need housing. And so, and they need tangible housing. So if we are souls and bodies, that demonic energy will look for openings. And there are various ways that we can create openings for this energy. Amazing. And so have you ever been attacked by... A devil energy in someone else? They saw you or you didn't really know them or 100%. in the same room? 100%. In fact, they'll seek you out. And they like to go to church, too. <laughs> I bet. Best way to find the devils within a church, yeah, absolutely. right? Absolutely. That is how I met the, the first person that I would call a, a, a complete, they'd made a complete contract with the devil. And they attacked you? They sure did. And how did, what did they do? Well, they befriended me. And being young and being in a church and, and not really knowing, not expecting the, the devil to live in a church, I guess, at that age. This is right before I started my, my work. Um, you know, I befriended this person. 
and there was almost a, a, a possessive feeling, almost a, a feeling of not only being watched, but also that they had some kind of control over, you know, where I wanted to be or when I wanted to see them, things of that nature. And it was a, like a false positive spiritual energy, almost an intoxicating energy that felt abnormal. And I did pick up on that. So as I pulled away, the devil got like crazy, very overactive. And I later learned that they were a disciple of a self-proclaimed witch Wow. who would work in Manhattan and go to these spiritual meetups, New Age spiritual meetups in New York City. And they're, they're everywhere. They're rampant. People have no idea what's going on. Amazing. Do what you do, are, <clears throat> are you ever called New Age? New Age? I'm sure I was called New Age, especially when I started yeah. and not knowing what to call this. You know, innocently using the word Reiki. And again, I never completely identified with that. I took one Reiki one training. I didn't get my master's, nothing right. like that. I am fairly certain. And you say Reiki? Reiki, R-E-I-K-I. It's a, you know, oh. a Japanese energy healing. So I'm, I'm sure, you know, the Christian Bible thumpers. What do your family think of you? Uh, I don't know that they understand my work at all. Uh, I think it's a hard thing to understand. Even your parents? I think it's a very foreign concept. For anybody who's not predisposed to this, right. or very active in the church, even would this be the same as believing in God? Do you believe in God? Absolutely. You believe in Him since I was little. And how do you know you believe? You believe in Him completely. One hundred percent. It's and, absolutely. So, and how do you know you believe in Him completely? When I was little, and. I'd be in a church or, um, you know, really difficult situation as I always found myself in as a young child with, with no one to, you know, protect or, or, or soothe. The, there, you, have no, you have two places to go in those moments. You can psychologically split, and that's when, where mental illness comes in, um, because it's, mental illness is designed to protect you in situations where you're not protected. Or if you're very lucky, you can merge with God. And that's what I always did. So that was my, my sanctuary, like my safety zone. When you were little. When I was little, from as little as I can remember. So what do, what do your, your father and mother say about what you do? They say what? <laughs> she helps like, people. Oh. I don't know. She's crazy. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think I don't know that anybody, anybody who's not, you know, close to to God in this, or the metaphysical world in this way, would Do understand. Do you feel alone? In what, when? Like, you're all alone in this. A lot of the time, yes, because even communicating to other people, there aren't, I'm sure the bus driver would understand. Right. <laughs> but, yeah, there's a general sense of aloneness. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, you have a book, uh, an e-book called There's No Shortcut of an ego, what do you mean by that? Well, when, when our uh, mind, which is a computer, is running the same script over and over because it relied on it from a very young age, and that, those can be very bad messages, but if they kept you alive at three, four, five, 10, 15, and they're now outdated, they're in conflict 
with your soul, with the way that God has designed for you to live. And there's a dissonance between the two when the, the pressure gets really intense between your way of thinking and what is what is healthy and true, that consciousness that, that comes from that intangible space. Right. There's an eruption and you you can't avoid it if it's predestined for you. And I do believe that God has certain destinies for each of us. And if your destiny is over here and that destiny requires you to abort a certain way of, of thought, you there and, and God is moving you here no matter what, God will cripple your life to make sure that you abort that thought and merge with the consciousness that's been designed for you. Amazing. Um, so the ego, is it a thought or is there something else going on too? It's a pattern of thought. And does feeling come with the ego? Feelings? You know, like sadness, Thoughts worry, produce feelings. Fear. We, we always think before we feel. Right. I noticed yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> all, all thoughts, all lies, all the time? Our thoughts lies all the time? It depends. If it's, if it's an unhealthy uh, ego pattern, it's, then it's, it's probably a lie if it's causing you strife. Is it possible to have a good thought? Yes. And how would you know when you have a good thought since the devil is so deceiving? And... How would you know if you have a good thought? A good thought is devoid of attachment. So if I have a thought about something, it's a good thought, but it's a neutral thought. Negative thoughts come with a tremendous amount of attachment and, and, and compulsion, almost. Attachment meaning what? Attachment to outcome, attachment to what surrounds that thought. Oh, I see. So if you think of a beautiful home and if you attach yourself to that, get a sense of identity from it, then that's a bad thought. If, you ha if that's your source of identity versus just joy that might you know, neutrally come from a series of actions, right. it's, it's how you feel and it's what emphasis, it's the reason why. Why do we want or need certain things? Do human beings create their own thoughts? Absolutely. And how do human beings do that exactly? Starts when we're little. Um, so whatever we're around uh, programs us like a computer. And when those computer systems, that hard drive, starts to short circuit because it's not lining up with our destiny, which is part of our soul and our consciousness, that's when the trouble uh, ensues. And that's often when people have injuries, illnesses, and so forth. So if human beings create their own thoughts, why don't they always create good thoughts? Because we, the ego runs on only what it knows. And you can't beat the mind. Meaning what? I, I don't quite understand it. If we're in charge of the thoughts ourselves, for me, I would never create anything but a good thought, something that is positive, quote-unquote, or I would never create a thought that would make me feel bad or make me worry or cause me to be sad or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So if I'm, if he would be, I'm in control of my own thought, wouldn't I avoid all that? Well, you have access to consciousness. So when somebody has a re repetitive thought that they've been trained on 
from a, a very young age, it's at war with their with their consciousness, which is what you're describing as as you know creating your own thoughts. So it does take a lot of work, but that's what an ego death is. So absolutely, that ego death can bring you to the next space where you become aware of your own control over your thoughts. But because the mind is such a computer, it's designed to keep you alive with any thought that was there to serve you. It could be a terrible thought. It could be, I need, I, I need to rob this bank. This is how my family survived. I have to do this. I have to do this. And so should we die of the thought? Because, um, oh, yeah, you talk about the ego death. You said there is no shortcut out of a dark, dark night of the soul. Mm -hmm. It's the dark night of the soul. That's the ego? That comes after the ego death, and it's a period of time I don't know, maybe you've experienced this where it's just blank and you almost feel that God is absent. And it's a testament, I think, of faith that um, no matter, even if nothing is happening, something is happening, but you don't have any proof. So the ego is the, is the death that we have to go through too, right? Yes. And then after that death, death, there's another dark period? There can be. Not all the time. And so sometimes there could not be? Correct. And you're just with the light? Correct. I it's see. haphazard. It's luck of the draw. And so make, make it clear as to how do, how do, how do people let an ego die? How do you let that happen? How should one let that happen? So when those thoughts that have been running in your mind no longer work and you are met with obstacles because of that, there is a feeling state that you have to move into to basically go against the adrenaline that runs from the ego into the body that says you will die if you change your thought. So you have to, in a sense, face death by going against what that ego is telling you and, and sit with that tremendous fear and consider the fact that whatever beliefs I have been running on do not serve me because that ego will send adrenaline to the body that says you will die if you think differently and you must sit there and feel as as though you are dying it's, it's a very internal feeling but we're so resistant to that what does it feel like utter aloneness absence uh, everything around you changes, your friends change, your jobs change, your community might change to accommodate what's on the other side of that computer program ego that's been running for so long. Yeah. So there's a real sense of alone. I talk to a lot of people now uh, because I, I talk about the ego and the ego death. Mm -hmm. And so I, I talk to a lot of men and women who are allowing that to happen. Mm -hmm. And they talk about how difficult it is, how painful it is. They can barely move or they feel like crying at time or they don't know what to do. And is that what you explain it as well? There's a sense of nothingness and yeah. confusion. It's a blank, it's a blank state. Take everything you, you think you know, move it out of the way, and then what do you have? Everyone has told me, those who are going through this, have told me that they have lost their friends, they have lost family members. They lost things as a result. Why do they have to lose something in order to die from the ego? It's physics. So two objects, two individuals 
have to vibrate at a very similar frequency in order to share space. And emotional and psychological thought is so powerful that when you shift that, everything else around you shifts. Yeah. And, and it happens to be people. So it's a wild phenomenon. I've gone through this several times now. The, the one thing I've noticed about dying from the ego is that um, you lose that attachment to friends, people, places, and things yeah. that you didn't even know you had. Because you can go through life not being aware that you have an attachment to people, places, things. Yes. And it's not until you start to die from that ego that you realize, well, I had no idea how attached I was to people, places, things. And um, have you experienced that? Definitely. But there's also a release that comes with it, I think. And what type of release? There's an emotional release. I think, um, again, if, if we're looking at it in terms of physics and two energies have to match, let's say perhaps your energy is a bit different, but you're dragging that energy along with you and you release that attachment for your own benefit or the greater good, yeah. you've, essentially dropped, you've essentially dropped weight and baggage. And that can be very shocking to see how much more energy <laughs> you might but have. it can also happen in marriages yeah. where husband and wife don't relate anymore. Well, they never related in, in reality. In the first place. Right. So how many times have you died of the ego? I don't know. Uh, from it's the a ego. good question. I think there are many ego deaths, and then there are macro ego deaths. So it might be one thought pattern, or it might be an entire concept of yourself and life, or things that you were told that you then find out 30, 40 years later, this one thing that was just beaten into me isn't true. And it's, that's very hard to let go of negative thoughts. Yeah. It's part of you. Yeah. And that's the demon. I want to ask you this. Um, there are men and women who go to alcoholic anonymous program, mm -hmm. drug programs. Right. And they walk into the program and they say, my name is John Doe and I'm an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And they're about to applaud and... And like right on, <laughs> <laughs> right on. And then some people get up and say, "My name is Ma Ma Ma, mm -hmm. and I was I've been off drug for five days." Mm. And people are like, "Yeah, right on, right on." And then they assign a person to you, sponsor. Right? Uh -huh. Is that good to do that? Absolutely. And I, why? I think. Well, you're, you're, you're vocalizing a, a, a truth, and when you bring something to light, even to strangers, God is, God is seeing that, and, and Satan hates for things to remain hidden. So I think any environment in which you can share your demons, you're bringing it to light, and once the light hits that truth, things do start to shift. But when you identify yourself as a drug addict, as an alcoholic, right? That label, taking as that a in. lesbian, right? Or as a homosexual, or as a whatever, very label a murderer, uh, rapist, whatever they do. When you identify yourself as that, you become that. You're reinforcing right? something because it's really not you. It is mm -hmm. the ego that made a home in you. So should people identify themselves as that? Because as long as you identify. It as you, you're never going to get over it. It's very tricky. So if I were an alcoholic 
you know, you go through you go through the motions of these programs and procedures, but I think it's very important to disidentify with labels. Yeah. That's just their, their way of doing things. So I would go and say, okay, I know that this is their way of doing things. This is the script. Here are the benefits. Take what I want and leave the rest. Well, most people don't know that, though. They believe that they are what they say they are. Mm -hmm. And when you have them stand up and say, this is who I am, they never get over it. And then you assign a person to them, a sponsor, and that person confirm it. You're late at night. Oh, I feel like I want to drink, mm -hmm. whatever they do. And the person, okay, go drink. You never get over the not you if you keep identifying with it. The identity part is tough. And again, I, I think that, you know, the program is the program. I do think it, it saves lives, but there has to be a conscious awareness around the, the words that you're speaking. And I think perhaps some sponsors feel exactly the way that you feel, but the, you know, the program is so strong and widespread that there, the, the benefits I think outweigh what you're talking about. But I, I think that, that, um, encampment or it, sorry, incantation, that incantation is, is dangerous. Do you have fear? Generally or specifically? <laughs> do you, do you ever experience fear? You? I do, yeah. You do. Mm -hmm. and, and is that fear from within? No. You, you feel it within yourself? It's never from within. And, where, and how do you have it then if it's not from within? What do you mean? Well, everything that we bring into us, is, it doesn't necessarily start you know, at birth. Fear is a, a thought form, a thought pattern. So as we pick up more and more thought patterns, they turn into... So what I do with that is break down what are the words behind this, where did they come from, and again, the mind is designed to keep us feeling safe, so it's, it's a war to dismantle any negativity that kept us safe when we were young, and then break that down as a fear, and understand that it's producing a false feeling within us. It's amazing how this time is going by so fast, I have so many things to ask. Have you surrendered? Are you a Christian? Yes. You are a Christian. Mm -hmm. And have you surrendered to God? I think I surrendered to God a long time ago. <laughs> but there, it's, a, it's a reaffirmation process. I did have a, an adult baptism in January of this past year right. to you know, re-immerse myself in the philosophical uh, context of the Bible. And what does it mean to surrender to God to you? What does that mean? It's never your own will. It's, it's never your own will. Um, I'm trying to think of how to explain this. Um, anytime there's resistance, it, it's your will. But with lack of resistance, that's God's will. Resistance to what? Anything. Uh, can you give me an example mm. of an anything resistance? Resistance to um, somebody not wanting to be in your life, perhaps, and wanting to know why and wanting to, to, to pursue that. It could be a family member, That's friend. That's a good example. You know, romantic partnership, whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, so if someone don't want to be in your life, you mm -hmm. just say, okay, fine. It is the greatest lesson. Rejection is protection. God has removed something from you and your resistance in, in allowing that just because you don't understand it. But how about if you feel pain to that loss? 
you, you really want that person in your life and you feel pain to lose that person so you try to go after it. Is that a sign not to do it? Not to go after that person? Or let him go, let her go? Chasing things that have left your life or your field is dangerous. Yeah. I totally believe that. It's so I, dangerous. I can see that. Yeah. It's, that's, the, that's going against God for ego purposes. Yeah. Because your ego is telling you you need to fix something. That is so true. Do, um, do you believe that you can completely die from the ego and have no ego at all? I mean, if I get hit by a bus outside after this, I'll be, <laughs> I won't have any more ego. But, but I think while we're, in, while we're incarnate, we always have a degree of ego. I want to talk quickly about the mother curses and son husbands. Oh, <laughs> that's a great one. You have a blog post on how to know if you're cursed. And you write that mm -hmm. a curse is in a state in which we do not feel free. Explain that. Well, I think the, the last example of pursuing that in a, in a resisted, you know, fashion, we're not, we're not free. We're beholden to our own mind and, and desires of how we think things should be. Another example would be a false belief, you know, that we have about ourselves. So a brainwashing or belief imposed upon us by a parent that was designed to control us for selfish purposes, that's a stronghold. And until you reject that, which is part of an ego death, you're not, you're not free. You're essentially living under a curse. Now, however that person became demonized is another story. Um, but they have demonized you by imposing their will. And children are, are just open vessels. They're receptive to everything. This is why children become like their mothers. They take on the same identity as the mother. It's a sign to them. It's a sign to them. Do you have anger? Sometimes. You get angry at times? I was angry about my censorship. About your what? <laughs> my, cens <laughs> my censorship. What do you mean? Uh, not being allowed to use certain social media platforms. Oh, I see what you're All saying. Of that, that, that made me quite angry, being oh. silenced. So is, <laughs> anger the, is anger the nature of the devil or the nature of God? It can be both. It can be either. It so depends. What do you mean? But God has anger, you think? I think there's a healthy anger, which is um, it's an alert. It's it's a red it's a red light to let you know that something is off, and that you need to dig deeper and to understand. Anger um, from a resisted state of I want, I want, and I can't have. Why not? That's that's the devil. It's contextual. Anger is contextual. God gives us anger. As a, as a warning sign, as an appropriate response. But I, I've recognized that God give us discernment. Are you calling the God-given anger discernment? Absolutely. Oh, I see. Right. You give an example of a young man being controlled and, and dominated by his mother, and you call this the ultimate and most evil stronghold in existence. Mm-hmm. When a young man is being dominated by his mother, what do you mean by that? How is that the most evil? Well, that that individual um, is being moved in as a surrogate husband, so they're they're yeah. placed in a role at an age where they have no reference um, to anything intellectually mature. So it's an emotional incest of sorts, and that that 
that piece of them that is supposed to grow organically and naturally is is taken and it's and it's used to meet some unmet needs and then that person evolves into an adult missing that natural you know order of um intellectual emotional spiritual intimate evolution how are you going to place yourself in society with without that i've noticed that there are mothers who prefer their sons as their husband all as the opposed time. to their husband as their husband all the time are the mothers aware that they're doing this some of them i think who are inherently evil others um are unconscious and children are malleable so they're able to uh, i guess assign uh, qualities and behaviors that are lacking in their relationship and are the sons aware that their mothers have made them into their boyfriend or husband not until they're older and they're still living at home 25 30 40 50 yeah um just you know not <laughs> not forming relationships with women What the Yeah, I'm aware. Happens all the time. Thing. Yeah, I see it all the time. You know, and they and they yeah. trap them. They want them around. And how can a son overcome that? What should he do to get away from that? I really think there needs to to be a crisis of sorts in his life first to even question. A lot of people get trapped. I think um in plain in plain terms, move away as, as far as you can. For mama? Yeah, and and rebuild But your life. But she moved there too. She if you move to West Hell, She'll move to West Hill to keep her with you. Not if you don't tell her where you're going. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, do your mother have that personality? My mother doesn't have sons. Oh, I see. So. And does she try to control you or your sisters or anyone? You have sisters? I do. I think all parents insert their own agenda, especially if they were younger yeah. when they had children and they impose that onto their children for sure. Amazing. One other thing I want to get to really fast. You write that um you write that evil is someone who lies to themselves. Mhm. They are aware of the lie. They would eat. I mean they would die of the lie. <laughs> <laughs> What do you mean? Well, I mean, look what's going on out there What right now. What a mess. Right? Yeah. But people are they're committing it is just so convenient to believe a particular truth and and in line to yourself, you know, you get sick, you know, all of these things that happen because you're at war. Uh your soul's at war with your thoughts. You're not aligned. Yeah. You know, it's like something's broken. Um sorry, what was your initial question? And <laughs> kind of uh, spaced out on that. Oh, I forgot already. Align to yourself. Yeah. The you most... you lie to yourself and they would die for the lies. Mhm. Because it's hard. It's hard to become conscious and true because then you have the ego oh, to ask, right? Oh, I know right? what I want to ask. Uh and when you say be true, is it necessary to tell the world your what's wrong or at least be honest within yourself that hey, I'm lying to myself or blah blah blah. You don't have to tell someone else do you just need to be aware yourself that you're lying to yourself i think it comes in tandem usually through interactions with other people something is provoked within you to make you aware i mean i can think of an example i had someone reach out to me last year someone i had worked with um and they said elaine i'm so sorry i'm so sorry that 
that I didn't believe you about what was going on politically and otherwise with all of this agenda. And they said specifically, I just didn't want to believe it. It was just too mm. hard. Because in doing that, like you said earlier, with an ego death, every, your landscape changes. Your friends change. Family members change. Your job changes. And it's people don't want to be alone. They, feel, they fear abandonment more yeah. than they fear death. So that's why people lie to themselves. That's amazing. It's amazing to me how, how rough, how hard the ego death is. It's really hard. It's crushing. Yeah. So I got to ask, and then I got to put you in the high seat. Do you believe in that order of God and Christ, Christ and man, man over woman, and woman over children? I think it's contextual. So there is a spiritual way of looking at that, and then there is a basic, uh, tangible human way of looking at that that can be perceived as uh, dogmatic or sexist, um, if that makes sense. So do you believe in it, though, in that order? I believe that that is, is how, how we have been designed spiritually, and then it is up to us how to translate that in our day-to-day -day lives, and it gets taken out of context, which is why people have this aversion to religion and, and Christianity. It's what we do with a uh, natural spiritual uh, order. Are you married? No, I'm not married. If you, have you ever been married? I've never been married. And I don't like doing ifs because we don't know the situation until we're in it, right? Right. But would you be, would you obey your husband and, let, and, and be under him? He would be over you, the head of you. Would you accept that? When you say over me. Like he's the head, the man is the head of the woman. Would you accept that? In what context? Period. Like this is my husband. He's over me. I'm going to obey him. In all contexts? Yes. So can you just give me a few examples? <laughs> I just need to know. Um, you don't know what it means to be... Obedient to your husband? Generally speaking, I think the, the masculine energy is, is there. You know, we're like the receivers, and yeah. that's the masculine energy is, is the provider and the protector. So in that sense, it, it makes perfect sense. Would you to, obey him? To oblige. I think we obey each other. But would you obey your husband? Can you give me any examples? <laughs> Generally speaking, I hope I would find someone that I was absolutely, you know, comfortable with obeying. That would make life very easy for me. It really would. <laughs> Should a man ever take a, obey a woman? In what sense? Period. Should a man ever take advice from a woman? Well, advice, feminine intuition, Perhaps. I got to throw you on the hot seat. I got to heat this up and throw you on the oh, hot seat. Oh, no. All right. <laughs> the hot seat. Do you love the great white hope? What is the great white hope? I'm sorry? What is the great white hope? Oh, Donald Trump. The President Trump. Oh, he's, I mean, he should be our president right now. Uh, that's right. Absolutely. Uh, whiskey or tequila? Whiskey. In one word, describe Camilla Harris. Nothingness. <laughs> um, Michael Jackson or Prince? Uh, 
prince. Should a woman be allowed to vote? Yes. Uh, is sex love? No. Is it possible to have perfect love? I mean perfect peace. Perfect peace? Yes. Yes, it is. Is love a money the root of all evil? No. <clears throat> Do you believe in reincarnation? Yes. Is the earth flat? No. Do you support abortion? No. What is a man? What is a man? Provider, protector. Do you love white people? Do I love white people? <laughs> I love people. If they're white, that's cool. Do you love white people? Sure. <laughs> Did you have fun? I had so much fun. Thank you so much for coming I'm on. I'm so grateful you had me. Yeah, it's good to have you. I enjoy that. Thank you so um, much. Tell the folks how to get in contact with you, read your writing, your blogs, and all those good things. So all the writing that <laughs> you <laughs> mentioned, uh, HealingElaine.com is my website. I have a shop page. I also have a Substack. So HealingElaine.Substack.com. Those are probably the best ways to find me. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you again for coming. Thank you so much. Amazing. Thank you all for tuning in. I absolutely appreciate it. Don't forget to like, follow, tweet, uh, subscribe, ring the bell, check out our merch. And um, I appreciate it. Have a good one. Thank you.